As you're doing so, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5. This morning we will be looking at verses 6 through 11, which you can also find on the insert inside of your bulletin, along with a brief outline of today's passage. This section of 1 Peter will be his final set of instructions for the church, particularly on his overarching topic. And his overarching topic, we've said all across this series, is hope for living faithfully during trying times. We'll have, Lord willing, one more Sunday where we kind of read his final greetings and talk about the implication of that. But here we get that final push, that, that lesson When the time is short, he can see the end of the page. He knows he doesn't have a lot of space left. And so what can I tell them to have the most impact upon their lives with what I've got left? And he can think of nothing else for offering hope for living faithfully during trying times than to tell the church, look to God. Look to your God. In fact, I've titled this, Behold the Mighty Hand of God. And we'll talk about why that is the case that's in our text. But we see this morning the true source of hope, the true source of strength. Back to chapter 1, the true source of holiness comes from beholding our God. With that in mind, would you please follow along with me as I read for us. His word. I will be reading this morning 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 6, and I'll read to the 11th verse. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, Strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Would you please go with me to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing upon this time. Dear Heavenly Father, much like the grass of the field, Much like the wild birds and animals that roam this world. If you did not care for it, if you did not feed it, if you did not provide water for it and a place to stay, a place of safety, it would not remain. We're told in your word, your eye is on the sparrow. We know that you watch over us. Through your word this morning, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts that we may be transformed. 
May we leave this place different than how we came in. May we be encouraged, empowered, and emboldened. And for some, may we be awakened, truly awakened for the first time to the goodness of God our Father. Lord, I pray your blessing upon this time. Help us to consider you now in the moments remaining. In Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Many of us find ourselves at the start of the year trying to take on a new skill, change something about ourselves. I believe I mentioned this at our earliest Sunday of the year, New Year's resolutions. These range a host of things. Um, maybe it's getting up earlier. <laughs> it was hard this morning. Um, working out more, changing our diets, or learning a new skill or ability. Well, here we are in March. Statistically speaking, most New Year's resolutions last somewhere between three to ten weeks. Here we are around week ten. How you doing? For a lot of us, if we've made it this far, we are likely to continue But for many people, and I'm very thankful, as one who tries to go to the gym early in the morning, it goes to the wayside and life settles to how it used to be. And this is a reality for many of us, and there's no moral consequence to that, positively or negatively. But that cycle of starting and stopping, um, attempting and failing, trying and not trying, and, and over and over again over the course of our life... We find ourselves wanting this, wanting that, doing a little bit of this, doing a little bit of that. Well, that's okay for what I would call just day-to-day pursuits. This cannot creep in to our spiritual lives. This cannot be a part of our spiritual journey. We must not forget our why as Christians. And I would make the case that why most habits, most changes in behavior, changes in um, our diet or whatever have you, it comes from a lack of why. Why do we want those things? And I would even make the case that the the why you pick and the reason that you see people to make these changes and and do these things is the, the why is strong enough to bring them back again to pick them up when they fail, to keep them going, to drive them forward when it's not easy or it's not convenient or it's not fun. That, that why in their lives really gives them a, a sense of, I will complete this because my why is important. And, and for the Christian and in our Christian life and in our Christian faith, that why must be God. The why study the Bible? Why come to church? Why fellowship with believers? Why grow in our prayer life? Why die to sin? Why live unto righteousness? Why pursue holiness? The answer must be God. Because much like those hobbies and habits and things like that, anything else put in that place is not strong enough. And it can lead to our failure. To please this person, 
to charitably give to reduce my tax needs, to have a social activity. There's many reasons that, that, that one could engage in spiritual activities. But if your why in them is not Christ, is not God, I'm telling you, it will not be strong enough to withstand the trials, withstand the storms, withstand the difficulties. I remember early on when uh, the situation in the Ukraine was happening and, and we have connections with our mother church with Redeemer and Pastor Tony got word from a missionary and, and it was uh, a quote he shared uh, from this pastor in the Ukraine that, that simply said this, if the building stands in the morning, we will gather for church. If your why is not God, you're not going to go digging through the rubble to see if the building stands. If your why is not God, you will not seek to worship Him despite air raids and police and challenging times. And so I encourage you, dear Christian, or even better stated, Peter encourages the church this day in his final lesson on hope during trying times, consider God. And he does it in three ways. And, and then we have a fourth point that's a, a, a warning Our first why from our passage is that God cares for you. God cares for you. It's a very strong why. We find this in verses 6 and 7. Secondly, we have a warning. And in this list of whys, we get an interjection. The devil will seek to destroy God's work and cloud your why. We see this in verse 8. But then thirdly, God will be victorious. This is in 9 and 10. And then lastly, God's reign will be forever. So we're going to reflect upon the Lord today. We're going to see Him as our why. And, and through that, we are going to see the strength needed to stand firm, to face the devil and the temptations, and to be victorious in the end. And we do that firstly by seeing how God cares for us. If you remember over the course of the last three weeks, we've been in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. This is a very unique section of scripture where we are told who past, or who elders should be, what they should look like, and how they should conduct themselves, and how we as a church should respond to that leadership. And really, the, the heart of that could be summarized as humble yourself before the Lord. Elders, church members alike, humble yourself before the Lord. That is the key to, to living a life as, as godly leadership. That is the key to living a life as, as godly church members. And that is directly tied into to this section as Peter continues that thought. He says, humble yourselves therefore. Because of what I've said, continue in that mindset. Humble yourselves therefore. Under the mighty hand of God. Now that's an interesting phrase that has a, a specific, um, it's a specific mind device. When you see the mighty hand of God in scripture, most of the time it's driving you back to the exodus. Most of the time this phrase is used, the mighty hand of God, it's to take you back 
to a time in Israel's history where they were enslaved by the Egyptians and through God's deliverance were saved, were brought out of bondage, out of captivity. God saved them out of Egypt. God saved them at the Red Sea. God saved them through their time in the desert. And God provided for them a land. A land in which they they lived in homes they did not build. They ate from vineyards they did not plant. And they drank from cisterns they did not dig. And so Peter, with that imagery, with all of that in mind, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. It really could be said here, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the God of the Bible. And what a message for the suffering church. What a message for Christians who were actively dying in Asia Minor. Peter really is saying here, remember how God has treated the church throughout history. And then he looks to the church and says, and he can still do it today, and he still does. But as we've been saying all along in this study... And I admit it again this morning, sometimes that word humble, it scares us. We, we look at that as such a negative. We, we look at that with fear. We, we think of it as a burden to carry. As it's a weight. When we, we're humbled by a weight being placed upon us. But that's not the case with God. That wouldn't be true of the mighty hand of God, the, the Exodus narrative. Because they didn't save themselves in Egypt. They didn't save themselves at the Red Sea. They didn't provide the manna from heaven in the wilderness. They didn't keep their sandals from rotting away. They didn't know the direction to the promised land. God did. And so if we continue on with, with that in, in our minds, we, we click quickly hear that humble is not... A punishment. It is not a negative. It's actually a blessing. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, continuing, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God's promise is to exalt his people at the proper time. And again, what impact would this have on a suffering church? What a strength and encouragement would this be to a church who has lost their homes, their identity, their professions. They're they're being scattered because of their faith. They're being persecuted to the point of death. And they're promised, God will exalt you because he cares for you. And it is easy to get overwhelmed with these promises. I I don't say this to you and then, you know, fail to admit to you, boy, this is hard. I struggle with this. I I hear the promise and go, I get it, God, I hear you. I understand what you're saying, but I still don't like suffering. I still don't like humility. It's still tough. And then God's like, and that's why I keep bringing it. I think we're, we're helped here by... Our confession, Westminster Confession of Faith, Shorter Catechism, question 26. It asks this, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And it answers, 
Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself and ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. Your afflictions are not overlooked by God. You will be exalted because he will be exalted. His enemies and the enemies of the church, ergo your enemies, will be conquered. And will face judgment for their actions and attitudes toward the people of God. There will be justice. Therefore, cast your anxieties on him. And much like that word humility, sometimes we look at it and we get a little nervous because it feels like a weight. We do the same when we're told to cast our anxieties. You know, God is not listening to our prayers with a, with a pencil and, ooh, Aaron suffered that way this week. Ooh, Aaron struggled in that way. I'm going to double down on that the next week. I'm really going to make sure we get him. God doesn't do that. He, he's not looking at a way to, to, to get you. God made you. God knows your weaknesses and your struggles. He knows your temptations. Let's just put it as plainly as we can. God biologically picked which traits would be dominant and which traits would be recessive from the genetic combination of your parents. He chose some things over the other. He chose to make someone like me all but legally blind and in need of permanent corrective lenses. And that's not due to sin. That's not a flaw. That was by design. Now, I would say, now, Lord, you you know, if I was on the character creator, I probably would have done that differently. And he's like, yeah, but you're not me. And so we should not fear casting our anxieties to the Lord. We, we should not fear giving him our struggles as if he's going to be surprised. Like, I didn't know that. He made you. Of course he knows that. <laughs> Many times we, we treat prayer to God kind of like fishing, where we, we sort of throw it to God, but before we really give an opportunity for him to interact with it and, and work on it in our lives, we're reeling it back in, really hoping that we don't catch anything anyway. All right, God, here you go. I've struggled with gluttony this week. Okay, hold on, hold on, okay. All right. He almost had to deal with it. Don't we pray like that if we're honest? Isn't that a lot of times how we, we treat him? We, we, we go through the motions. We, we do the, what's being asked, but only just. Cut the line. When it says cast your anxieties upon him, let it go. Give it to him. Give him your struggles. Give him your weakness. Give it to him. Which means you don't own it anymore. He does. Which, by the way, he says, I'll give you my burden. And it's much lighter. And it's easy. Take my yoke upon you. He gets your burden and you get peace. It's a pretty fair trade. God cares about you. He, he cares so much that he entered into that unfair trade. He, he made that deal. So much so that he sacrificed his own son. It pleased the Lord to crush him. 
His Son, Jesus Christ. God Himself became man, died upon a cross, the, the, the death that you and I deserve, so that we may be called children of God. This first point is so important. And this first point, really, we really could, could end here and reflect upon this for the rest of the morning. Our, our why in this Christian life, God cares for you. That's why. That's why. And that's enough. But by His grace, there's more. But before we get to that, we, we need to take a, a, a bit of an interlude. Because there's another problem we have to overcome. Sometimes when people come to Christ and they especially are new in the faith, they, they find themselves going, all right, I believe. Now it's going to get easier and better and more wonderful from here on. And in some ways that is 100% true. But the Bible never says that you will go unchallenged. The, the Bible never says you won't have temptation. In fact, if you've been with us at any length of time in the book of 1 Peter, we're told each chapter, each section, you will face suffering. God will bless you through suffering when suffering comes. And here in our very passage this morning, after you have suffered, which means you will suffer, we will also face the temptations by the devil himself. And Peter to that mind says, be sober-minded and watchful. He's used this language before in this letter. Do not let yourself be lulled into a false sense of security. Some of the most difficult times in the life of Israel was when they could provide what they needed. Note that, when they could provide what they needed. Every time it goes wrong in there, that's where it starts. You've got a generation who believed in God and God saved them and He rescued them. And then through that faith, the community prospered. Within a couple of generations, you've got great-grandchildren who grew up with everything they needed and provided. And they get to think they did it themselves. And they decide they don't need God. So they turn from God. And then by the next generation, they're back in captivity. Cyclical nature of the Old Testament again and again and again and again. We must be sober-minded and watchful. Now... We want to be careful here. This is talking about being weary of the devil. But I don't think that means we need to look for the devil around every corner. The devil is not omnipresent. He's a created being that cannot be in all places at once. We know this from the book of Job. He was summoned to heaven. He comes to heaven. He gives an account before God and he says, I've been walking to and fro. He was on earth and then he went to heaven. As... Um, we would say in seminary, the devil has a zip code. He exists. And so we don't need to look around every corner looking for the devil. That's not what this means. Nor do I think we need to fall into that trap of every time something bad happens to us, we, oh, the devil made me do it. I spill my coffee. I spill my coffee because I'm clumsy, not because the devil tipped the cup. And you've got to be careful with that because it, it is easy. It, it is easy to, to find this spiritual fault with things when sometimes life just happens. Now, sometimes life happens because you're a sinner and you're receiving the consequence of your sin. 
And that, that's more what, what, what Peter is, is saying here. We, we must be watchful of our hearts. We must be watchful of our own lives. We must be watchful of what we put in, what we consume. Keep your eyes, your ears, and your hearts on high alert. Why? Because for all of us, no one in this room is excluded. There are some sins close to your own heart that if gone unchecked will cause havoc in your life. We saw in that first point the need to focus our minds and our hearts upon God because He cares for us. It's when we lose that focus that we fall afoul here. It, it really is why I believe that Peter's got this great list of whys and he interjects in that second point this point. It, it almost it seems disjointed to me. But I believe Peter is brilliant in what he's doing because he's speaking through the power of God. He's saying, God cares for you, that is your why. When you fail to realize that, you fail to appreciate that, you fail to live like that, then you better be careful because the devil is right around the corner. Using the metaphor of a lion here to make his point, Peter says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour he is our adversary. He's opposed to us because he's opposed to Christ. He hates God, the people of God, and the things of God. And, and while this is a warning, this in and of itself must serve the other three points of our passage. Because of the devil and because of his schemes, we must be all the more driven to focus on God. We look to the one who gives us strength. We look to the one who has already defeated the lion. But we take it seriously. We are not at war with a legion of turtles. I don't know why that was so funny to me this week. We're fighting against a lion. God, he had all the animals. He could have used as a metaphor. And he says, we wage war against a lion. A hungry lion. And think about the context in which Peter's writing. It's probably why he used it in the first place. What's going on right now in church history? Well, the Romans have found a new form of entertainment that has kind of swept the region. The gladiatorial fights in the Colosseum, one of the coolest architectural designed buildings or structures in the known world, even to this day. And they had this game they liked to play. It's called Feed the Christian to the Lion. And they had these trap doors in the Colosseum and they would put Christians on these pillars and they would raise them from the lower floor up to the upper floor and let them free. And you'd have this moment of, look, I'm free. And then you'd realize you're in a Colosseum with lions. The, the stories go that this was so regular and so frequent that the lions grew too fat and full to eat. They grew bored. They were fed so many Christians that they got tired of killing so think about the church that Peter's writing to. Think about that imagery currently going on in Rome. And then he says, now the devil is a lion. You think that would have piqued their ears a little bit? You think that would have awake, you know, awoken them up? We don't have a lot of risk of running into lions in our culture today, but they sure did. The risk of, of being eaten by a lion was great. And so we must be careful, for our adversary is real. He has teeth. He has claws. 
We cannot ignore him. We cannot give him too much power, but we cannot ignore him altogether. But listen to me in this. While that is a serious matter, and while that is something I'm telling you, you must be sober-minded and watchful in. God is already victorious. The lion has already been defeated. He has already been conquered. You're, you're, you're not going into a battle wondering how the outcome will be. You're, you're going into a battle knowing that you in Christ are already the winner. God is victorious. And I, <laughs> I love how, how Peter puts this here. You know, verse 8, we get this just super demonstration and example of, of, of the devil and uh, of his ability and, and of his fierceness and of his power and, and all this wonderful description. <laughs> and then verse 9, just the first two verses, resist him. You almost find yourself going, okay, hold on, God, hold on. You're going you're gonna to expound upon that, right? Have, like that's Second Peter, that's the describing resist him, right? No, we're good. Resist him. Two simple words. I imagine to many of you, much like it did me, that seems like a bit of an oversimplification. It can't really be that easy, can it? But before I, I answer that question, which the answer is yes, I want to tell you how. How? How do you resist him? How do you withstand the lion? How do you protect yourself and your loved ones from his attacks? By faith. I love this, what one commentator said. The call to resistance does not summon believers to do Herculean acts on God's behalf. Believers are not encouraged to gather all their resources to do great works for God. No, resisting the devil means believers are firm in their faith. Believers triumph over the devil as they trust in God, believing that he truly cares for them and will sustain them until the end. We're not necessarily called to fight lions. Rather... We trust in a God who shuts their mouths. Daniel chapter 6. Thrown into a lion's den. The king didn't even want to do it. He loved Daniel. Comes to him as his night, restless, full of fear and anxiety. He comes the next morning to, to, to see about his friend Daniel. The man he got tricked into putting into a lion's den. Are you okay? Oh, I'm fine. We serve a God who shuts the mouths of lions. And so as powerful as verse 8 is, doesn't that deflate it a little bit? Doesn't that soften the, the, the weight of that verse? The, the fierceness? We serve a God who can just... No. And so yes, it is very appropriate that God simply says, resist Him. But I'm here to tell you, you can't do it on your own. You can't do it without faith. You, you can't do it without trust in God. That, that would much be like taking a toy sword into a battle. It may look great. and You may know the right moves. You may know what to do. But at the end of the day, you will be defeated. Because your weapon is insufficient. 
We cannot go into spiritual battle without the word of God. Without prayer. Without the armor of God. His word. The good news of the gospel. The sword of the spirit. The shield of faith. The breastplate of righteousness. And he further, he does go on to expound upon why it's so simple as to resist. And we do so in faith, and it is simply that. But, but Peter wants to encourage the church because he knows that's hard. He, he knows that's a tough thing to ask them. And so he says, dear Christian, resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You are not alone in this. You're not being cast into a gladiatorial ring by yourself. You're being cast into a gladiatorial ring with fellow Christians, with fellow believers. And not like the gladiators of old. You have a full set of armor. You have a full set of armor and a sword. And the crowd is cheering for you, not the lion. A great crowd of cloud of witnesses. And so what we're called to as brothers and sisters in Christ, what the, the church has to do is when we have a brother or sister or when you find yourself in a season where you feel like you're being attacked, one, you let us know. Oh, is that a hard point to make? And, and it, it's a touch of an aside, but you have to let us know. You, you, you cannot go into that fight alone. You can't do it. Now, you, through the Lord's strength, you, you can be victorious. But why would you? When you've got a church, a, a body of believers here and around the world who is saying, I've got your back. Much like many of the, the, the mighty warriors in society, you pick up your shield that covers not only your side, but the side of the person next to you. You stand back to back. You you stand side by side and say, we'll fight together. We will fight together and the devil can't get all of us. He can't bring all of us down. We as a church must be united. Because here's the reality of it, dear Christian. The cyclical nature of life, it means while you may not be in the arena now, you will be soon. And those of you that are in a season of strength, you're, you're strong in the Lord, you're strong in your walk with Him, you get up, you put on your armor, you get your sword, and you go find someone in the pit. Because it's not going to be long from now that you're going to need that for yourself. We as a church have a great calling, a great need for each other. Use your gifts of unity. And we can take it a step further. You know, it's not just simply resist him because we're suffering together, because we're the church. We can resist the devil because Jesus has resisted the devil. God has conquered death. He has defeated Satan. The great promise made to Eve back in the garden. A seed of yours. One will come. He will bruise or crush your head, or you will bruise or crush his head, and he will bruise your heel. The great promise. Jesus took a death blow on that cross. He gave up his life. But Satan, and I love that, I love the word destroyed. I love that, that strong imagery. It really gets the Hebrew there. Obliterated. 
would be fine. And so what is the, what is the conclusion for us? After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You will suffer, but only for a little while. Average lifespan in, in this country, um, I, I looked it up uh, for a woman, it's 81.1 years, and for a man, it's 79.2. That's not that long. A little bit of suffering, a little bit of struggle, a little bit of challenge, a little bit of hardship, and then combat that to eternity. And then, boy, does that make it small. Does it make it and make us want to say, yeah, by God's grace, I can hang on a little while longer. And again, back to practical application for the church. There are many of you here, many of you dear saints. We have many in our lives that have been fighting and fighting, and fighting. Your walk with the Lord has been long, and your battle has been great. And I, I almost wanted to say there's dents in your armor, but I, I don't want to diminish the, the strength of the armor of God. So there's smudges on your armor from the blood and the mud. And there's the tiredness on your face. As a younger Christian, let me just say, Keep fighting. Keep fighting, you saints who are closer to the Lord. Because we're looking to you. We need to see what it looks like to win. We need to see what it looks like to be victorious. We need to see what it looks like to finish. It's one of the things that Paul tells Timothy in his instructions to that young minister. You make sure the older men, they minister to the younger and you make sure the older women, they encourage and strengthen the younger. We need each other as the church. As we are united together in our struggle to combat sin daily in our lives, we will glorify God as we live out His calling. We will look to Him as our source of strength. And lastly... And we see this in verse 11, this, this prayer, this really a praise. We look to eternity. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Your translation may read power and glory. Uh, the ESV, for some reason, takes those two words and changes it to dominion. I think it's sufficient because it's talking about God's ability to act and, and God's ability to rule and to reign. But, but he ends it here, he, he concludes this point to struggle well by looking to God, by reminding each one of us that God has the authority and God has the power to carry out his desires in this world and the world to come. Dear brothers and sisters, I in no way, and I pray this has not been the case across this series, I don't want to minimize your struggles or what you're facing today. Many of you are carrying heavy burdens. My hope is that you've seen the need to take them to the Lord. And as you weigh them against His eternal love and His eternal rule and His eternal reign, as you cast them upon Him, would He be your source of strength and hope through trying times? We recognize this day that God has conquered our greatest enemy, Satan. 
And we who are in Him will cross the finish line. Until then, we're called, each one, to behold the mighty hand of God, to keep our eyes upon Him, and to remain watchful for the fight that is before us, knowing that it has already been won. That's the challenge for the church today. The challenge for the church in the time of Peter's writing. But know that that is going to end soon. Because our Lord is quickly coming. Would you please pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for your people this day. I pray that we would be united as we look to you. I pray that Christ the Redeemer Church, that we would be a community of Christians who love to study your word, proclaim its truths, and share it to the far corners of the known world. Would you continue to strengthen us, to grow us, to knit us together as part of the body of Christ? Lord, our adversary is great, but our Savior is greater. And to the one who can shut the mouths of lions, we pray for your help in these times, your watchful care for our brothers and sisters around this world. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.